Welcome back to the second hour of Tip Today. 1800 938 007. That's our free phone number. And uh, of course, you can uh, text and WhatsApp on 083 311 The email is tiptoday at tipfm.com. Now, one of the biggest talking points on the show last week was the OECD report that claimed that there was no excess debts in Ireland during peak COVID. And now Ali spoke to Professor Anthony Staines, who tried to explain it to us. And he was telling us that it's all to do with comparisons to population growth and the fact that we have an older population and all of that. Now, we got a huge reaction, indeed, on the programme, with many people rather uh, suspicious about the report as well. Um, uh, Dr Billy Ralph is a Wexford-based GP, and he was in touch with us because he was listening to some of the interviews last week, and he joins me now. Billy, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. How are you? Thanks very much indeed for making contact with us and coming on with me this morning as well. You spoke to us in your correspondence about the darker aspects of what went on during COVID. Would you explain some of that to me, Billy? Okay. um, Yeah, I'm glad you're actually taking the time to uh, address this issue because very few people want to hear about it or very few media outlets want to even discuss it. So some of the darker aspects. Okay, so from the outset, um, GPs closed their doors to patients. Mm. We're the medical profession, and we closed our doors. And then we received a document from the Irish College of General Practitioners telling us that um, we we don't need to see our patients. We don't need to examine our patients because basically there were no treatments for this condition. And we could just advise them that depending on the level of breathlessness, they could then call an ambulance and turn up at the hospital. Now, that to me is not why I became a doctor, so that I could deal with everything on the phone and I could keep my hands nice and clean. And I could turn around to very elderly patients that I've known for a number of years who were frightened by the amount of nonsense that was coming out of RTE um, about the risks to the population, and it was death, death, death. Um, but then when they rang me looking for some solace or to be seen by the doctor, I'd be telling them, sorry, no, I can't see you. I mean, that alone was one of the darkest moments that I've had as a doctor in 30 years. And what was it, Billy, that informed the Irish College of uh, General Practitioners that that informed them to to give those instructions to GPs like yourself. What where where did that come from? Um, to be honest with you, I don't know, um, and, I, and I'm not going to run off down some conspiracy routes. But there was some very dubious modelling done by a man called Neil Ferguson from Imperial College, who has a very uh, dubious track record of modelling of diseases from the swine flu to foot and mouth, etc. In the UK. And it was very heavily funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And he came up with these horrendous figures for the numbers of deaths likely to occur um, should a series of measures not take place. So uh, the British government ran with his modelling, and I think the American government ran with some of his modelling as well. So the frightening element of the numbers of possible deaths, hence the deadliness of this condition, came out of his faulty modelling. Now, his modelling, despite the fact that his models were challenged by Nobel laureates like Michael Levitt, and there was research from the likes of Professor Johnny Ioannidis at Stanford, 
showing that the the infection fatality rate was probably a little higher than the flu, and the, and we knew who the age risk were. The this, the message was still, oh, everybody's at risk, um, and uh, therefore it was safer not to be seeing people than to lock everybody down. Now, where the Irish College of General Practitioners got their view uh, back in April of 2020 that GPs would keep their doors closed and not see patients, uh, I, have, I have absolutely no idea because that runs against all practices of medicine that I've, I've ever... And I'm just, I'm wrecking what's left of my brain cells here because it, it seems to me even when I think back on that time now, even though it's only a short time ago, I still sort of have this surreal... Um, a sort of image of it all in my head. But the WHO at the time, they weren't all that anxious about the notion of lockdown, were they? The reason they weren't is because in the 2019 pandemic guidelines, there's nothing about lockdown. This was changed. This was changed in 2020. And it was changed. And initially, the people who introduced lockdown were the Chinese Communist Party. They introduced lockdown to their society. Now, how that filtered through to so-called Western liberal democracies, I don't know. I know there was a big scare about what appeared to be going on in Italy. Mm. Um, and I don't know what influence the Chinese model had on the Italians and then subsequently panic spreading through uh, Europe. But there were, there, were, there were many, many notable academics, not in this country, but people from the likes of Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, you know, it, academic institutions which far surpass anything we have in this country, who were completely ignored, and instead we listened to people who were pretty mediocre in their profession, actually, um, and, and completely ignored um, people like uh, Martin Kulloff of Harvard and Professor mm-hmm. Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, uh, and who had it, a reasonable voice. Is it an excuse, Billy, that we were in unprecedented times and that... You know, it it was goodness that was at the back of the decisions in terms of protecting our people. Because do you remember the the famous phrase we were trying to listen to the science? Yeah, yeah. No, I I don't, I don't buy that. Do you um, because as I say, from as early as April, when Johnny and I just published uh, the data from the Diamond Princess cruise ship, mm. um, which was like a little petri dish experiment of yes. people trapped on a cruise ship of mainly, you know, the type of age group who go on cruise ships, as well as a young uh, cohort of um, the staff, it was quite clear what the infection fatality rate was going to be then, likely be then, and who, who obviously, who was most at risk. Um, and, and, and as it turns out, he, he, his predictions from then, as, as with Michael Levitt from some of the Chinese data that he was managing to get earlier on, um, it turned out that's exactly how it was. And that was that was March, April of 2020. And we continued on this vein of panic, despite a huge amount of evidence. We even, like, for instance, we invited Professor Carl Hennigan from the Oxford... Um, the Oxford... Uh, the Oxford Institute for Evidence-Based Medicine. Um, and he's a professor of evidence-based medicine. We invited him to the Dáil to speak on, in August of 2020. And he was asked about masks, and he basically spoke to the science. So he spoke to the science, to the evidence, and, and, and the panel didn't and, like and what that. what was that as far as he was concerned? What was that evidence? There was no evidence that widespread use of masks would make any difference to the transmission of this to a community and to a society. No evidence to date whatsoever. Now, 
you have people like Anthony Staines sitting on that panel as well, who has the temerity to say to, and this is on the Dáil record, to say to Professor Hennigan, um, perhaps Professor Hennigan is not used to dealing with data. He's a professor of evidence-based medicine. And, and somebody like that to speak to that man in that way, this is the height of disrespect. Um, and it was demeaning. So that's the kind of approach that these people in this country took. Your own colleagues and many of them on this programme as well, Billy, I mean, would have insisted that we listen to the science at, at the time and even to question it in any way seemed to be treacherous almost. Um, did, did, you, did, you, did you get that kind of reaction from colleagues, for example? Yeah, yeah, of course. You can't question. You aren't, and there's no such thing as their science, by the way. It's science. Mm. And science is uh, full of conjecture, open to uh, challenge, um, and it's a fluid... Yes concept. There's no such thing as Of course, but you, I, I know that you realise that's not coming from me. I'm just repeating no, no, what, we were told, what we were told to do, which was listen to the science as if there was only one narrative. I'll I, I give you an example, right? I'll give you an example. Um, I watched a bit of prime time, I think, once, and uh, Luke O'Neill was on with a very naive young journalist. And uh, at this stage, it was probably late 2020, when the Great Barrington Declaration had been put forward by these people from Harvard, Stanford and Oxford. And it was, a, it was a more measured approach to protecting the most vulnerable, who we knew were the elderly in society, not shutting down society because of all the actual ramifications of shutting down an incredibly complex mechanism um, and isolating people away from all their support services. They had a different approach. And... The only time I heard the Great Barrington Declaration mentioned on RTE was this young, naive journalist saying to Luke O'Neill, what about the Great Barrington Declaration? And Luke O'Neill was allowed to get away by saying, ah, sure, none of them are immunologists. He's not an immunologist, but he's not even a clinician. This was written by numerous clinicians, signed by 50,000 medical specialists. And to date, there's probably, there was over a, a million signatories to the Great Barrington Declaration. So the consensus was basically rammed down people's throats um, and it was it was not helpful. It did a huge amount of damage to people and we're seeing the ramifications of that damage rippling forward in our economy and in the levels of mental illness um, in our society and probably related to this concept of excess deaths. I'll give you an example. In the UK, right, in the UK, the, um, the Council for Social Justice, they recently did a report looking at how much the British government spent over COVID, you know, for social welfare payments, masks, vaccines, etc. And it worked out about $400 billion. Now that's $400 billion to some extent wasted because of the opportunity lost to spend that $400 billion in, in a social context. And, and the result of that has been, as they've estimated that, Prior to COVID, one in nine children in the UK needed psychological support. And they've estimated that now it's one in four children need psychological and mental health support. Now, I, I don't see that the UK figures are going to be any different in this country. We're structurally very, very much the same. Um, uh, so that, that, to me, indicates that there's been an absolute mess made of our country. And how, how do you answer what uh, Anthony Stain said on this programme last week by way of 
commentary around that OECD report that uh, no excess deaths. His explanation, and I'm struggling with this now, but seemingly that the trajectory for for um, deaths in Ireland had been going down for, for quite some time. And his point was, and I, I don't think I'm doing him a disservice here, why it looks like there was no excess deaths was because the figure had been going down anyway, Um so it sort of brought it up to a kind of a, a normal level. It, it, does that make any sense to you? No, it doesn't. And I think every man and dog in the street knows more people who have died and become ill over the last couple of years than usual, OK? Uh, remember who Anthony Staines Anthony Staines is one of these zero COVID zealots. Right, well, I don't, I don't want to particularly attack Anthony Staines. No, no he, but, he, but he's on record of, of you know, yes. you know, advocating the zero, so zero coronavirus in a society. That, that is like, a, that's a nonsense. There are coronaviruses, there are eight, at least eight coronaviruses that affect humans anyway, and another coronavirus which becomes endemic in a society. You cannot, there's no such thing. Right. So how that man could even begin to believe you could, like, you could achieve that. And, and the, but, but the issue was, how were they going to achieve it? And they were going to achieve it by draconian measures, which are anti-democratic, by right. locking people in their homes, arresting people who walk on beaches, you know, preventing people from seeing loved ones in nursing homes and hospitals, um, and arresting and jailing an old lady for not wearing a mask in, in, a, in a shop. That's the kind of society that the zero COVID people wanted to create. That's the sign, death sign. And, you know, just, just to add to what he was saying, and again, where these figures are concerned, that, you know, they hadn't taken into account population size changes, demographics, you know, an older population and all of that. Um, that still doesn't make any any no, sense Fran, to you, does Fran, it? If you, if, you, if you look at the European Union's website called Eurostat, I understand what he's saying about... I, I went on to the OECD and I couldn't find any figures for Ireland. There's 38 countries listed, all of which have excess debt. And it, it, it breaks them down each month and over the last few years. I, I couldn't find our... I went on to Eurostat, which is the European Union's figures. And if you look at 2020, five of the 12 months had excess deaths, April being the worst with about a 38% increase in deaths. Then if, if you look at 2021, 10 of the 12 months had excess deaths. If you go to 2022, 11 of the 12 months had excess deaths. And if you go to 2023... The data is up to October, and every one of those months shows excess deaths. That's your stuff. So people can go on and look at the look at the charts. They're there. You know. So I, I don't know what Anthony Staines is talking about. And to me, the, the timely the timely uh, produ- production of uh, a a report saying, "Oh, we did so well," and then we're looking now to have a and have an inquiry, and there's been no critical voices tackling this issue. There are excess deaths. Everybody knows there are excess deaths. There are excess illnesses, excess autoimmune problems, excess cancers. We know they're there. Um, but, but if we acknowledge that they're there, we then have to say, why are they there? Right, Billy, will you indulge me for a moment? Because I just want to play you a clip from the minute. When, when, these, um, when the OECD figures emerge, uh, this is what Stephen Donnelly had to say. Can I just play this? Just a, a few seconds of this. The OECD published a report just before Christmas and it showed that Ireland had the fourth lowest excess mortality rate 
uh, in the three years, COVID and so 2020, 21 and 22, the fourth lowest rate in the OECD. That's not thanks to government. That's thanks to a national response where government, the Oireachtas, our incredible healthcare workers and people in their communities stood together in the face of this mm, pandemic. Because I'm and sure I, you know that for some people, the question then arises, were the restrictions too tight? That's exactly what this review can look at. But ultimately what we wanted to do was save as many lives as possible. So that's the Minister, Billy, uh, giving us a clap on the back. That's complete and utter rubbish. There is no evidence worldwide that lockdown made any difference. And uh, and he he will not be able to produce any evidence. Again, people uh, like professors of medicine at Stanford and Harvard uh, the Heart uh, Organization with Dr. Claire Craig and people like that in the UK, Carl Hennigan in the Oxford uh, for uh, evidence-based medicine. Th- th- all those people have basically said masks did nothing, lockdowns did nothing. They did harm the lockdowns more than anything else. And this business of clapping everybody on the back, you, when you're clapping everybody on the back for giving up some of your democratic rights to just basically free associate, protest, etc., so that's an absolute nonsense. This is a sock because there's going to be an election next year and these people know that they have an angry electorate and they have an angry electorate across a number of major issues. Um, and they're just trying to put a, some sort... It's like that bloody Jerusalem, I think, they did during COVID. I've never seen anything more nauseating. Um, I, I don't know what the hell that was, the hell was about. The dancing and the clapping and so forth, was it? Yes, yeah. and Donnelly's comments there now, that's yeah. another up to people via the media to make them feel like they did so well because they did what they were told. Do, do you have any issue with the fact that the same minister is now reaffirming our commitment to the notion of a, an international pandemic agreement as well, probably based on the kind of information that you're discussing with me? I do have concerns. I am not an expert on the pandemic agreement or the international health regulation. There are two things which are going to change. I'm not very aware, very knowledgeable on either of those, but I do know from what I have read that there appears that there will be a degree of uh, sovereignty removed from countries across a number of areas, like the dealing with the health of animals, dealing with the health of the land, dealing with the health of people, uh, climate-related issues. These will all be um, these will all be come under the remit of the WHO, who have will have fairly strong legal powers in relation to individual governments. Now, WHO by itself, I don't have major issues with, but I do have issues with organisations that are funded by external sources that benefit from certain approaches. Like, for instance, uh, the FDA, which is the Food and Drug Administration in the US, and the EMA, or the European Medicines Agency in Europe, they're 75% plus funded by the pharmaceutical industry, yet they are the regulators of the pharmaceutical industry. The WHO, for instance, the biggest funder of the WHO is Germany. The third biggest funder is the US. But the second biggest funder of the WHO is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Bill and Melinda Gates, or, or Bill Gates anyway, is also yeah. involved in Gavi, which is the vaccine organisation. And Bill Gates is on record as saying one of the best investments he's ever made is investing in mRNA technology because he reaped billions out of the um, 
three billion so out of you you have no problem understanding why there's so many conspiracy theories out there and and indeed while ordinary people like myself i mean i i was struggling through some of this this morning to try and get some answers or so it the complexity the web of information um it's almost impossible to get answers or to get a, a viewpoint even it is Ram. i agree it's, it is um I, I just look at where the money is. Who's making money? And I look, I see, what, what I look at is, I followed a number of people over the last few years. I prof- like the two professors that I mentioned from Oxford and Stanford. The other professor from uh, Stanford, Professor Ioannidis. Then I looked at Professor, professor Marek, Professor McCulloch, and Professor Daglish. All of these people have given very reasonable approaches to both the societal and the medical and the science aspects of this, okay? Now, the, the, what they have in common is that they almost all lost their jobs. Yet, yet these people went from being some of the most published people in their field. For instance, uh, Peter McCulloch was one of the most published cardiologists in America, and he goes from being a, a, a man in his late 60s with a, with a stellar career to being a quack overnight. Same with Paul Marek one of the most published intensive care physicians in the United States. And he goes from that position to being vilified overnight. That, that, that doesn't happen in a reasonable society. So when I see the, these people's view, and then I look at the people like um, our so-called experts, um, and I look where they are now. You know, they're quids in having sold various companies. They've got elevated positions within uh, big Irish companies. And others will probably move on to either the WHO or European position. So, you know, if you, and if you look at uh, the kind of information they were giving out versus the reasonable information that these other people gave, were giving out, and then you look at who benefited from the approaches that they took. Now, all those people from the likes of Harvard and Stanford, why they were vilified as opposed to just ha- let's have a discussion, like we're having now, let's have a discussion. You've got there. There are viewpoints, and I appreciate Anthony Staines, and he he's an epidemiologist as well, so he knows much yeah. more about numbers than I do. So I'm, I'm going to concede that perhaps there is some validity in his explanation because I don't understand enough of it. But I understood a hell of a lot of what those people that I just mentioned. I understood what they were saying. I also saw what I was seeing on the ground as a doctor, and then I was also seeing what I was being asked to do as a doctor. And morally, I found it reprehensible. Yes, I didn't find the, the comments of the people, um, those other experts, those international, I didn't find their views reprehensible. Uh, but I did find the idea of destroying our society and breaking, breaking. I mean, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you a human story, because I'm rattling on here about some science. I'll give you a human story, okay? Mm. There's an elderly man who used to come and see me. He still comes to see me. His name is Jim. Married for about 60 years. And his wife sadly developed dementia, and she got to the point where she had to go into a nursing home. They came with visit her every day, and he would come and see me occasionally, and he would tell me how depressing it was to watch her fade away because she couldn't remember who had been in that day, what she'd have for dinner, etc. And then on one day he came in to see me to say he kind of found a secret of how to talk to his wife. Uh, and he used to, what they used to do is they would talk about the past because she could remember the past. She could remember when they were young and self-forced dating. And he said... For a moment, he would have his wife back. So then COVID came, 
and they closed the nursing home, so you couldn't go in and see people. So Jim would still go up every day, and he would stand looking at his wife. She'd be in the window looking out at him. She had no faint idea who the hell he was, and he'd be looking in at her. And you know, he said to me, he said, some days when it's sunny, on a sunny day, he said, I can't even see her because the sun, all I can see is my own reflection in the, in the, in the window. And then he, got to, he eventually got to see her weeks later. But he got to see her when she was dying and she was unconscious. That's what COVID did. Okay. That's what these people did. And I can hear in your voice, this is upsetting you, even still to talk about this. I'm very upset by it. Billy, thanks for your time this morning and uh, good to talk to you. And uh, and thanks thanks for tuning into the show as well. Thanks very much. Thanks, Billy. Good morning to you. That's uh, Dr. Billy Ralph there uh, speaking to us this morning. 1800-938-007. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie.